I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We continue to look at this psalm, which is the longest uh, psalm in uh, the book of Psalms. It is broken into uh, 22 stanzas, each stanza being eight verses long, and each stanza, the words of that stanza beginning with the same letter, and so we come to the letter Zion in, uh, in the Hebrew alphabet. And we're going to look at Psalm 119, verses 48 through 56. Psalm 119, verses 48 through 56. Hear the word of God. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord, hot Indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. So ends the reading of God's word. Please join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to your people, your church, both in the old covenant and the new. We have the great blessing of knowing that the Messiah for which they hoped and prayed and longed for, has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he has borne our sins in his body on the tree and has been raised victorious over death and hell and now sits at your right hand. And it is, O Lord, with a desire in our hearts that your spirit would minister to us and enable us to draw near to you in our souls that we might know something of that fellowship, something of that union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing that comes to us in that life which you give to us in him. So, Lord, we do pray your blessing upon us now as we consider these words together in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus in John chapter 14 said, if anyone loves me, he will, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, who is not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The reason I mention those words is that of the Lord Jesus is that I believe very much that this particular section of Psalm 119 is reminding us that it is through the ministry of the Word of God that we realize something of that union and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised and glorified and governs and rules over the world, but dwells especially mindful of his people and desiring of them that they would seek his power and his word and have fellowship with him and he with them. And that is what he describes in that passage from John chapter 14. We will come into him and make our home with him. We will have fellowship with him. And so It ought to be the desire and the aspiration of everyone who claims to name the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we would know him better, and that he would come to us even through the power of his word. Psalm 119 is very much taken up with the theme of love for the word of God, and that is right because it is through the ministry of the word that blessings from God come to the psalmist. And the more he reads the word, the more he meditates upon it, the more he loves it, and the more he experiences something of the presence of God with him and that great sense and that feeling that sometimes comes to us of God's presence with us and our fellowship and union with him is indeed sweet. It is something for us to be reminded, and as we go through this psalm, we are reminded again and again of the need to love God's word, how we ought to love God's word for the very reasons that I just said. Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, told his children that they should take a verse of Psalm 119 every morning and meditate upon it. And by doing that, they would go through the psalm twice in a year. And he told his children, if you do that, you will be, it will bring you to love all the rest of Scripture. It is truly a mark of the Christian that we love the word of God, that we love the scriptures because they bring Christ near to us. And as this section of Psalm 119 opens, uh, it begins with this theme where he desires the Lord's presence with him. I want to just say, um, I think the main point of this section is this. God's word is the great means of blessing and joy for the Christian. God's word is the great means that God uses to bring blessing and joy to the Christian. The more we read it, the more we meditate on it, the more we hear it, 
the more we hear preaching about it, the more we are exposed to the word of God. And as we are exposed, praying for God the Holy Spirit to work in us powerfully by it, God ministers to the Christian. It is a great means of blessing and joy for the Christian. I'd like to look at these eight verses under three headings. First, God's word ought to be the basis of our prayer life. God's word ought to be the basis of our prayer life. Second, God's word ought to be the source of our steadfastness when we face opposition. And third, God's word sets before us the perspective and the practices of pilgrims. That's why we sang, I am bound for the promised land earlier. I want us to have that in mind as we look at this section because we are very much indeed pilgrims. So to state those three again, God's word ought to be the basis of our prayer life. God's word ought to be the source of our steadfastness in facing opposition. And thirdly, God's word sets before us a perspective and the practice of pilgrims. First of all, God's word is the basis for our prayer life. What is prayer but drawing near to God? We pause, we set things aside, whatever it is that we're thinking about that we have before us for that day, and we quiet our hearts and we close our eyes and we bow our heads and we seek the presence of God in prayer. How the Christian knows that prayer is so necessary for us if we are to have fellowship with God. It is the expression of the heart's desire for fellowship with God. We know that the fullness of that awaits us in the consummation when Christ returns in glory. Then we will know as we are known, and then that fellowship will be glorious beyond description. But as it is now, we experience that fellowship as we go through our days, as we deliberately set aside time to pray. And notice that the psalmist says, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. The word remember occurs several times in this section, and it is an important word. Here the psalmist himself is not speaking of his own remembering, but he's praying and he's asking God to remember what God himself has said to him. Isn't that interesting? That he asked God to remember. Does God forget? No, God can't forget his word. And yet, it is that the psalmist comes and says, Lord, remember your word. What that means, basically, is that the word of God is the reason or the ground or the basis 
of our faith when we come to God in prayer. One person put it this way, it is the warrant of faith. If I go to the store with a, uh, um, a, a receipt that tells me because uh, possibly I went there and I, I, I wanted something and it was not on the shelf and they give me uh, a note saying, when we get it, um, you, you, we will set it aside for you. I can't go in there without that note and just say something to them. I have to have a warrant for it. I have to have some sort of a receipt that tells them that it's legit and they can go to their books and they can look it up and they can say, yes, it's true. We told you that and we set that aside for you. The word of God functions as a warrant or the justifying grounds for our asking of God. In our study on Tuesday, we were talking about the clarity of Scripture. And we were talking about that doctrine, and we were saying that the, the one prayer that God always will answer is when we come to Him and we speak and we, and we, we pray the things that He's given us in his word back to him and we ask him to reveal himself through his what he is saying here and to answer what he is saying here in his word that uh, he will do that and it is always a great comfort to us to be able to realize that for example let me just say as an example of this you may at some time come to God and feel especially uh, that you have no business coming to God. That uh, God, of all the people on the face of the earth, um, he should not hear you come to him and bring requests. And often I think we feel a sense of discouragement. But then this promise of Jesus, or these words of Jesus, might come to your mind. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That gives me a warrant. And I can say to him, you said to me, you have said in your word, whoever comes to you, you will never cast out. Hear my cry. That's, that's an example. We bring our children when we have them baptized. I was talking with someone earlier today about even the idea of having children in today's world is so frightening for some people. But people who know the Lord live in faith and trust in the Lord. And so we bring our children to baptism because the Lord has established and ordained the sacrament of baptism and he's given us a promise for our children that he will be a God not only to us, but also to our children. And St. Augustine has said that his mother, Monica, would put his finger on that promise every day and pray it. That's praying with a warrant. That's praying with a warrant. Augustine said that his mother would do that. 
And she kept bringing before God his own handwriting. She kept bringing before God his own handwriting. I'm telling you, you cannot go wrong in your praying if you bring before God his own handwriting. The Apostle Paul, when he prayed about the persecutions and the difficulties that he endured as a preacher of the gospel, he said to the Corinthian church that God had delivered him from deadly peril. Because God had already delivered him from deadly peril, he was confident, he said, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So we have had the experience of God coming to our rescue. Has God come to you and saved you? Has he done it once? You can pray that and you can say, I am confident that what he has done in answer to prayer before he will do again. We may be in the crucible of a great trial or a great difficulty. And we may remember these words, God remains faithful. God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In times of great grief and sorrow, when we've been hit with something that we did not expect, and we have just been bowled to the ground, and our emotions are just shot through, and we don't know what to think, and we don't know what to say, the one thing we can remember is God has revealed himself in Scripture. He is good. He is good. And everything he does is good. I may be feeling the weight of his hand at that moment. I may feel crushed at that very moment. But like Job, we can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so it is that the believer holds on to God's word, and that's what the psalmist is doing. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me trust. You have made me trust. You and your sovereign grace, you and your sovereign power. And so we learn something about what it means to pray then. We see as well also that not only is the word the warrant of prayer, but the word of God gives great comfort in affliction and that his promise gives us life. As we trust in God's word, isn't it the case that you have experienced again and again, that God has come to you in your heart and spoken to you and he's renewed you and given you life, as he did when he first brought you to Christ by his own power, by the word of truth. So the word of truth in the ministry of the Holy Spirit has that same effect upon you again. It brings you back. It brings you back to life, that living and imperishable and that abiding Word of God, and that's what the psalmist says, your promise gives me life. Verse 50, verse 50, your promise gives me life. Charles Bridges, the commentator on this psalm, says, one word of God sealed to the heart infuses more sensible relief than 10,000 words of man. One word of God sealed to the heart 
infuses more sensible relief than 10,000 words of man. We've all, we've all dealt with an avalanche of human words. Human words coming at us, trying sometimes to help us, and also fruitless. But one word from the sovereign, almighty, powerful, gracious, loving God who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, one word from him, it will give you life. It will set you free. And there's something miraculous about that. There's a power in it. It's the very word of God. The second thing I'd like for us to observe in this psalm is that not only does the psalm give us a basis for prayer and the comfort that comes from the, the life-giving power of the word of God, but we see, secondly, that God's word is a source of steadfastness when we face opposition. God's word is a source of steadfastness when we face opposition. The Apostle Paul taught the churches as he ministered among them that it is through much difficulty that we enter into the kingdom of God. And it is true that we should expect to experience difficulties of many kinds. To become a Christian and to follow Christ is not to be on a rose path, a path covered with roses leading all to celestial joy and happiness. We should expect it to be the case that if we profess faith in Christ, and if we make that known to others, that others will not always agree. Others will not always respond with a smile on their face. As we just read earlier from Acts chapter 17, the apostles preaching in Athens, what was the response that we got, that he got? When he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, they mocked, some believed, and a great many mocked. And so are you willing to speak of the resurrection of Christ and risk mockery and risk that opposition from a family member, a family member that doesn't want you to talk about God at all, who has established it as the rule of your relationship that you will never speak of his name? Will we be willing to speak Speak of Christ and what he's done for us and of God and his power and his salvation. We'll be willing to speak even in the face of opposition. It's the word of God that will give you steadfastness when you do experience that. And it is especially the case not only in those situations where we're called upon to testify in difficult circumstances, but there are also things that Christians do that non-Christians just don't understand. They don't understand why it is that you give so much attention to and take so much trouble to do certain things. That your Bible is out there just not as a decorative display, but that you read it and that it's important to you to take it in, that, 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 the, that involvement in the church is not 
something you do when you feel like it, but that it is something that by conscience, by the, by the weight of the command of Almighty God, you feel bound to join God's people whenever you have the opportunity to give praise and thanks to God. Non-believers will not understand that. And so it is that those who are careful and maybe more strict may be more likely to experience difficulty and the taunts of the unbeliever. And so the psalmist speaks of this, the insolent utterly deride me, verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. And so the word of God then is, keeps him steadfast in spite of that opposition. The psalmist, though he dwells in Israel, is experiencing something of the opposition of his love for the word of God. He's surrounded by those that don't share that. And we might be surprised at that. You would think that the covenant people would all love God's law. And as it is today, so it was then. Not all who are named of Israel are Israel. Many give lip service only. And so it is that the psalmist experienced this derision and this mockery, this opposition. Many of us may have family members who don't understand and oppose our own steadfastness in following Christ. There's an interesting account in the Old Testament of King David. King David was bringing the ark of the Lord to the tent that he had set up. There was a great celebration. There were offerings made and there, was, there were uh, meals shared and David was in a high form of, of joy. He was in high exaltation, and he was excited, and uh, he distributed food to the Israelites and sent them all home rejoicing because the ark of the Lord had been brought to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And uh, the account goes this way, that David returned home, but Michael, his wife, had these words for him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David responded to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. There is a man, there is a man who knows that the word of God is his foundation for living, and the calling of God upon his life. He says, I will do this. 
and I will do it more and more and more. May it be that God would give all of us that same resolve to follow after God's word. How painful it must have been for David when he heard that. Do you think, you know, you, you go home and the one person that, you, that you're most intimately connected to and you want that, that response of fellowship and joy, and David got just the opposite. The Lord Jesus himself suffered. He suffered greatly. As he walked on earth, he was, he was alone. Uh, the disciples were his companions, but how little they understood in their pilgrimage with him. When he was on the cross, consider the mocking that he endured from men. The eternal Son of God, from all eternity, God himself, on the cross, being mocked by flesh and blood that he made. Consider it. He was willing to do that and to suffer that for you. I am a worm and not a man, scorned and by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Oh, how Christ endured mockery. And he did it for us. And why did he do it? And how did he endure? How is it possible for him to endure that? How is it possible for you and I to endure when others oppose us and mock us for what our faith in Christ How did Christ endure? Was it not the promise that the Father had given him for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross? And at the next part of Psalm 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you. That's what kept him going. That's what kept him going. Looking ahead to the promise of the Father that if he laid his life down for the sheep, that the Father would give him that congregation and that he would be joined by them before the heavenly throne and give praise to God. That's what kept him going. And so also may it be that the word of God would be our strength, that the promise of God would be our strength in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of the lack of support, in the midst of opposition. May it be that God would keep you faithful to him. The psalmist goes on to speak about the way in which he says in verse 50. Two, he says, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. He, uh, the, the translation rules, I, I prefer a, another translation there. When I think of your judgments 
from of old, I take comfort. And the psalmist would not only uh, would take comfort in God's word, but would especially take comfort in the accounts of the ways in which God delivered his people in the past. When I think of your judgments from of old, that is of the past. And that brings us to the necessity of us knowing something of the greatness of the deeds that God has done in history. And those historical accounts of what God has done from creation on and his mighty acts and the great things that he has done, those things come to to the mind of the psalmist. The destruction of the world by a flood the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And of course, that greatest thing of which could ever happen, the incarnation of the Son of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God came and took to himself your flesh and mine to secure our eternal salvation. And there... He was was crucified on the cross, and he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. That is the great and mighty act of God in Christ, accomplishing our salvation. And the psalmist speaks of the, the great judgments of God and the deliverances that God has accomplished for his people, and he finds encouragement and help in that. Apostle Paul said, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so it's important for us to know our Bibles, to know those stories, how wonderful it is uh, as parents have the privilege of sharing with their children. And we have the privilege in Sunday school here of teaching the children what God did in those days of old. It's important to know that we live in a culture that once it was the case that the vast majority of people knew those things and they don't anymore. And as believers, how important it is that we do that. Well, we, uh, we move, move on and we say that the accounts of God's judgments while bringing comfort to the psalmist also uh, caused him Hot indignation. Indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And he thought about those who uh, abandoned the word of God, forsook the the, the word of God. Hot indignation comes over him. The word that is translated hot indignation is... Uh, 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 it's a word for a blast of hot air, and it's associated with the wrath of God. And the psalmist experiences something of the righteous indignation against those who sin in pride and who abandon God. And we live in a culture that has abandoned God's word. And I think it's true for everyone who knows uh, knows the Lord that we uh, that we experience that as well, that sense of grief and sorrow and indignation that Jesus had as he cleansed the temple, as he faced death, as he raised Lazarus from the dead. We're deeply moved. He was deeply moved at that time, and we also, 
as we live in a culture that has abandoned God's word, it ought to affect us deeply. We ought to grieve for it. And as we've been hearing recently, it ought to move us to share the gospel with others. i quickly go through uh, the last uh, third thing that, of this psalm, and that is the word of God gives us a perspective and a practice as a pilgrim. And the most important thing that we notice here is that the psalmist says, uh, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojournings. I remember your name in the night and keep your law. So he uh, is uh, calling his life on earth uh, the house of his sojournings. He remembers that he is on a pilgrimage and he is not at he is not yet home. Uh, we are like those saints of old who realize that uh, we look forward to a city whose foundations and whose designer and builder is God. We look forward to that heavenly Canaan. We look ahead, and our lives are very much lives of pilgrimage in this world. And uh, the saints have always died in faith. They've died in faith, not having received the things that have been promised, and greeting them from afar, and acknowledging that they are strangers and exiles in the world. And if we are strangers and exiles in the world, then one of the things that uh, is going to characterize us is songs of the homeland, songs of heaven, songs of Zion. I think of the... The, the, the rich hymnody of the church. The Apostle Paul encourages us to sing. He says, he says, do not be filled drunk with wine, with, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so the pilgrim is one who makes it a practice throughout his day to sing to the Lord. I think it is something that uh, we should treasure uh, the songs of the church. We should treasure the hymns of the church. And we should make them a part of our lives as much as it is possible for us to do. And uh, that's the, the psalmist uh, speaks of the, the statutes of the, lo- the Lord the law of the Lord being that which he sings. He drew me up from the pit, pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock. God has made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. What is the picture of heaven but a picture of all the 144,000 who had the name and his father's name written on their foreheads. But I heard a voice from heaven, and that choir in heaven, and it sounded like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn the song, except for the 144,000, those who had been redeemed on the earth. No one knows the songs of Zion. 
but those who have been redeemed. But those who have been redeemed love to sing praise to God. How is it that we keep this, how we need to keep this song always fresh on our lips, to be singing praise to God? And then finally, we notice that the psalmist says, I remembered your name in the night. I remembered your name. We remember the name of God. As a pilgrim people, when we set our heads down on our pillows, one of the practices that we want to have is to remember God's name, to bring up the memory of the name of God, is to remember his covenant, to remember his promises, that he has promised to be our God and to keep us on our pilgrim way and to bring us safely to our heavenly home. To remember God is to remember that he is the all-wise disposer of the events of our lives and to trust him with those events. To remember God is to remember that he is almighty and all-powerful and is able to do all things, though you may be fearful of the future. To remember God is to remember that he is the one who is filled with compassion and sympathizes with you in your weakness. That is to remember God's name. To remember God's name is to remember that he's revealed himself to us as one who does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. As you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you prepare to go to sleep at night, to be able to repeat these words, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. To remember those kinds of promises is to be comforted and to be safe and to be secure in the Lord. The name of the Lord, the psalmist says, or the proverb says, is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the psalmist says, at night, I remember your name in the night. When you can't sleep and when you have to get up, like I do so often, and walk around the house when everything's dark and everybody, Eileen's asleep. And you're trying to find a way to get yourself tired again. You pick up your Bible or pick up a book. And I have friends who tell me that they do the same thing, so I know I'm not alone. And they pick up the book of some, some devotional writer that speaks to them about the things of God. Set your heart at peace. And sometimes those, those times are the most blessed times of fellowship and communion with God. And then this, this section ends with this. The blessing has fallen on me because I have kept your precepts. And I would just say this. He doesn't mean that he has earned and deserved God's blessing by his merit and his works. But what he means is that he has put himself in the pathway of blessing by exposing himself to the promises and the richness of the promises of God's word. There is great reward in 
in submerging ourselves in Scripture. This brings us back to the starting point. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Notice that. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. That's what the psalmist says. This blessing has fallen on me because I have kept your precepts. It doesn't mean that he lived a perfect life, but that he loved and he meditated upon and he guarded and he kept the precepts of God. And Jesus says the same thing here. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Who loves me. Do you think that you are going to love him in that way and he will not love you back? Wives and husbands, you don't walk up to your, your, your spouse and put your arms out to, to wrap them around them and have them turn their back on you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. And I will manifest myself to him. And if anyone loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him. And we will come into him and make our home with him. And that's why this psalm ends with this this blessing. What blessing? Fellowship, communion with God. It is our highest privilege on this earth. Prior to the arrival of the Son of God from his glorious throne in heaven, it is our highest privilege to have fellowship with God by his Spirit in his word. This blessing has come upon me, he said. It has fallen upon me because I've treasured and I've lived in and I've lived by and I've held God's handwriting back up to him and prayed by them these precepts. That's what he's saying. And may it be that we would know more of the love of Jesus Christ, more of the love of God the Father, as we learn to love Scripture more and more. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for that which you present us with in this part of Psalm 119. We do pray that as we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would come to us. And that as we are obedient and put ourselves in the pathway of blessing, that you would hear our prayers. That you would revive our hearts. Give us hope. Give us life, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn tonight is...